As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. We're not looking at and thinking about sort of 1930s style authoritarianism where it's you know, Hitler and Stalin and SS brigades and the like. It is a more modern version of authoritarianism where something appears to be a democracy. There are elections, there are people in office, but yet in reality, there is one ruler whose power is fairly unchecked. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. If you are interested in a high-powered group that is in the center of the legal fight to save our democracy from Trump's authoritarian tendencies, you will want to listen to this episode. Protect Democracy is a nonpartisan, nonprofit legal enterprise that is working to prevent the erosion of our democratic norms and laws and institutions. Justin Florence is the legal director of Protect Democracy. Before he helped to found the group after the election of Trump, he was a lawyer in the Obama office of the White House Counsel, and before that, senior counsel on the staff of the Senate Judiciary Committee. When you talk to Justin, you hear intelligence and dedication to key principles of vital importance to the country. Protect Democracy is fighting against moves in the following areas, politicizing independent institutions, executive power grabs, spreading disinformation, delegitimizing communities, quashing dissent, corrupting elections. All things that sound like resume items on an applicant for a Trump White House role. Justin was a very good person to chat with about how Protect Democracy is working to keep our country from decline on those several fronts. So, after our sponsor, my interview with Justin Florence at Protect Democracy. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So my name is Justin Florence. I am the legal director of Protect Democracy, uh, an organization that I helped to found about a year and a half ago. I graduated from college in 2000. Um, I'd grown up on a small sheep farm in New England, but after I graduated from college, I went to graduate school and studied American history. I left without doing a dissertation because I decided that I was more interested in today's world than in being a professional historian. And so after leaving graduate school, went and got a law degree. I then worked for a judge. I worked at a law school studying national security law. And then I worked in Washington for about a decade, um, first at a law firm, 
then in the Senate for the staff of the Senate Judiciary Committee, then in the White House as a lawyer to President Obama, and then moved to Boston, uh, where I live now with my family, worked at a law firm here for a couple of years, and then after the 2016 election, helped to set up and, and lead Protect Democracy. So that's a, a pretty interesting career and reaching some pretty high levels. Can we explore that a little bit? Where did you get your law degree? From Yale. Who was the judge that you worked with? The judge was Diana Motz. Um, she sits on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. So that covers um, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, West Virginia. And one thing that's really interesting about that court is that the Pentagon uh, in Virginia is within it. And so a lot of cases involving national security issues make their way to the Fourth Circuit. We had a couple of the year I was clerking that raised a lot of hard issues that emerged after 9-11 about how we balance law and security and civil liberties. And working on those cases got me really interested in how rule of law functions in these challenging times and how you balance all of these competing interests. Tell me more about what you learned from clerking for a judge at that level. So a lot. Um, one was I became a much better writer. Uh, the judge I worked for had a very intensive process for working on opinions that involved a whole lot of back and forth between the clerks and the judge. And so my writing got much better. Another was just thinking about how judges approach cases before them. And all kinds of different judges have different judicial philosophies. But I think for the most part, judges are really focused on trying to get the right answer in, in hard cases and to weigh the arguments that the different parties are making and try and come up with a, a correct answer to how to balance it. Now, obviously, different judges, kind of priors and the principles that they care most about will come into play there. But I think for the most part, they engage in a really thorough and thoughtful process to get it right. You next went into national security law, you said. What, where was that and what was going on? Sure. So at Georgetown Law School, scholar there, a guy named Neil Katyal, who since worked in the administration and now is a practicing lawyer, was setting up a center on national security law to both study and engage in some of these hard questions that had emerged since 9-11 on law and national security. And so I helped start this really kind of academic law school center, but that was in Washington and that did have an advocacy focus. And the projects that I worked on, one was looking at detention and what are the rules for when the U.S. government can detain somebody in the war on terror? And if it wants to do so, what type of process does a person get to challenge their detention? So do they get to go to court? And how does a court consider those situations? Another issue I worked on there was involving something called the state secrets privilege. So this is a legal doctrine that basically says some types of policies involving U.S. national security are so sensitive that not only are they classified and so not kind of disclosed to the public in the, in the typical course, but even when there's litigation about them, there's a caution with letting the court or the parties to the litigation know and see everything that's going on because of concerns about the secrecy. And that, of course, creates a difficult question as to how you can have a, a legal and judicial process when the court or the parties involved in the case don't know what's going on. And so I worked 
on legislation that, that didn't did not get enacted, but on proposed legislation to try to regularize how that privilege applies and how it could be done in a way to allow courts to do their job in cases to go forward while still protecting national security secrets. Sounds pretty interesting. What was their path from there to the Senate Judiciary Committee and, and tell me a little about working there? Sure. So, so my path was that I, after doing this, felt like I really wanted to practice law. I had worked for a judge. I had worked at this law school, but felt like it was a good time in my career to actually work as a lawyer. And so I went and worked at a law firm in Washington, D.C. that did a lot of appellate litigation. So what appellate litigation means for the, for the non-lawyer listeners is after a case has been decided by a trial judge, then whichever party or parties don't like the outcome can appeal it. And the focus on appeal is more on the legal questions at issue than on the different factual disputes. So it gets a little bit more into sort of what is the law and what should the law be rather than just what are the facts of this particular case. And so I worked on appellate litigation at a law firm in D.C. for a couple of years, knowing that I always kind of wanted to go serve in government. And I, after some time at the law firm, applied for jobs both in the Senate and in the executive branch and ended up getting a job with the Senate Judiciary Committee and went to work there. And it is a, a fascinating place to work because you end up sort of seeing the intersection between all three branches of government. So judicial nominations go through the Judiciary Committee. So you are very focused on the courts. There's a lot of back and forth with the executive branch, both about legislative ideas, legislation that the president wants to pursue, and also oversight of wrongdoing of the uh, within the executive branch. And then, um, of course, you're in Congress, and so all sorts of questions about how Congress works as an institution arise. Yeah, it's an enviable job also. And then you, then you move into the White House uh, as one of the lawyers for Obama? Right. Um, so there turns out to be a lot of overlap between the work that the Senate Judiciary Committee does and the White House Counsel's Office does. Um, they're both sort of focused on these questions about separation of powers and how the different branches fit together. And so it was a, a pretty natural move. I started working for the counsel's office in the White House in the beginning of President Obama's second term and was there for basically two years. It was an incredible privilege to work there. It was an extraordinary job, an amazing group of people really dedicated to trying to serve the country and do the right thing and work through hard legal and policy issues. I wonder how different it is now. I think extremely different. Our office really was focused on kind of the substance of making sure the government was functioning in a proper way and, and advancing the president's policy issues. And we were not overtaken by scandal and playing defense against investigations and the like. And I think it's, it's probably just a completely different office now than, than it was then. With all your background in national security law, I wonder what your thoughts were on the recent case on the Muslim ban that was handed down. I am disappointed in how it came out and especially disappointed that it's how Justice Kennedy sort of chose to end his career by casting the vote the way he did there. My sense is that it's in some sense about national security law, but it's much more a case about the powers of the presidency and 
the extent to which one assesses the president and the executive branch's reasons for doing things. And I personally sympathize with the, the views and the various dissenting opinions that it was pretty obvious what was going on here. And although the, the process of judicial review and court consideration did change the policy from where it started to where it ended up and did make it kind of more refined and, and narrowly focused, that there's a, a lawyer who uses the phrase animus laundering, which I think is really apt here. So animus is the notion that you're looking to kind of what motivates a policy. Is it based on proper policy considerations or is it motivated by bad faith? And I think what happened in the travel ban is that in the various iterations of the order, there was this process of animus laundering where, to use another cliche, the executive branch kind of put enough lipstick on the pig to make it look good enough that the court upheld it when we all really know what was behind it and where it came from. That's my view of it too. What was your lens on the 2016 campaign and its victor? I had moved out of Washington in part because I thought it wouldn't be that interesting of a campaign. And I thought Hillary Clinton was sure to win. I was shocked that she didn't. And I thought that the things that we were seeing from then candidate Trump were quite distressing and upsetting, but I thought that he would not prevail and that his approach would go a bit into the, the dustbin of political history. Um, that's obviously not what happened. I was, like many others, completely wrong. And even after the campaign, there was sort of a sense, well, okay, now that he won, maybe he will change his approach and become more presidential. And nothing during the transition indicated that shift at all or nothing during the early days of the presidency. So, you know, just to kind of back up and flesh that out a little bit, the types of things that I found so upsetting during the campaign and beyond were just this assault on the institutions of our democracy that protect the rule of law and a well-functioning constitutional system. So things like independent law enforcement and the free media and confidence in the running of and conduct of elections and that people will have their voices heard throughout the campaign. Trump would, would attack all these things, would say the system's rigged, would say the election is rigged. He might not follow the results. The media is all fake and liars and enemies and needs to be locked up. You know, law enforcement's all corrupt and can't be followed and rigged. And that kind of attack on the, on the basic rule of law institutions is something that we see continuing and, and escalating more and more to this day. You have on your uh, site a threat index. Can you talk a little about what that indicates? What's the methodology behind that? So this is something we worked with a group of scholars uh, to host, um, led by a professor named Michael Miller at George Washington. And what they um, have done is collect a bunch of different factors and then survey scholars on repeated bases to assess the health or danger of U.S. democracy over time. And the idea is to be able to track against these, these factors in a somewhat organized and systemic and consistent way how our democracy is doing and, and move it out of just one side thinking, well, I'm happy because I got the policy I wanted, so our democracy is good, or I'm unhappy because I didn't get the policy I wanted, but to actually look at these core factors that define how a democracy is doing. And what we've seen is a kind of steady uptick in the threat score 
that reflects a move of the U.S. from a democracy that's, you know, a little more like the U.K. or Canada to one that is more like Hungary or Poland or Turkey or other countries. We've seen that our once stable democracies that have really declined in recent years into more authoritarian governments. Do you think that's premature? Do you th- what makes you feel like we're quite that bad at this moment? I think it's a question of trend, not not of where we are. So I don't think we have become Putin's Russia. I think we're still a long ways off from Putin's Russia. I don't think we've become Erdogan's Turkey. When we started Protect Democracy, one of the first things we did was talk to scholars who study these democracies, folks like Yasha Monk, Steve Levitsky, and Dan Ziblatt, uh, so political scientists, Kim Chappelle at Princeton, who study democracy and democratic decline. And what we took from those conversations is that there's a little bit of a playbook that these authoritarian-minded leaders follow. And sometimes they do it quite intentionally and purposefully and know exactly where they're going. And sometimes they do it in more kind of bumbling ways, but that it it consistently looks the same and that it is roughly defined by an assault on any institutions of constraint, whether they're media, whether they're rule of law, whether they're courts, whether they're civil service. And I think the trend that we are seeing here is, is in all of that direction. And so whether we have gotten to a particular point of like crossing the Rubicon I don't think we have crossed the Rubicon. I think there's still a lot that our institutions can do to hold, but I think we are moving in that unhealthy direction. And the the scary lesson from some of these other countries is that it it can be a process that just sort of builds and builds over time. And all of a sudden, even though you've never had a military coup, you haven't had tanks coming through the streets. You are in a place where there are still elections, but you don't really have confidence that those elections are on the level or reflect the outcome because they really have been co-opted by those in charge in a way that preserves their power and prevents the democratic check. It's certainly hair-raising to contemplate. It is. Tell me a little about the founding story of Protect Democracy and your team and advisors. You've mentioned some, but like, what have you helped to pull together here? Sure. So in the days after the election, I had a series of phone conversations with my co-founder and our executive director, Ian Basson, who had also worked in the White House Counsel's Office and who had gone to law school with me. And we talked about this, this set of issues we've been discussing about, was our democracy sort of in danger in a way that it, it had not been in our professional lifetimes? And was there a set of organizations in civil society that could help check that. Um, we were in a, in a situation where Congress, which the Constitution envisions as the ultimate check on an executive, was in the hands of the party of the president, and so uncertain what type of check Congress would be. And so Ian and I had some conversations that there is a real threat here of something unrecognizable happening. And while there was a lot of hashtag resistance type discussion going on and there was no organization that was focused on this question of how to protect American democracy from a decline into a more authoritarian government. And so we started talking about what such an organization would look like. At the same time, various other folks 
uh, lawyers who had worked in government were having similar conversations in Washington. And we ultimately connected with them and decided that we thought it did make sense to create a new organization with this focus. Others were creating different types of organizations at the time focused on different sets of policy issues. So we went back and forth on on what started as a concept paper, like a two-pager that that basically laid out our theory of what we were concerned about and why we as lawyers who had worked in government and had been the people policing the legal rules that constrain the executive and knowing how the system worked and where the weaknesses were and where things could could go awry were well-positioned to try and point out and create some checks on a runaway executive. I was still working at a law firm at this time and uncertain whether I would actually leave my law firm to do this full-time or not. I I fairly quickly decided to do that, but we went about um, raising money, developing a strategic plan, and hiring a staff who could actually do some work. And as we built a team, one of the things that we've most focused on is the issues that we care about are not partisan issues and should not be partisan issues. So we don't have a view on what the best system of taxation and marginal tax rates should be, or what type of regulations should address environmental problems or climate change, or how our healthcare system should work. We are focused just on the rules of the road for how a democracy should function and should enable people to resolve policy disputes in a democratic way. And so nothing about what we're doing is is partisan or should be partisan. And so we sought to, and have had some success in building a, a truly cross-partisan staff. So we have on the team, somebody who had worked for Senator McCain, conservative lawyer who had kind of come up in federalist society circles and worked for a conservative judge, a veteran of congressional Republican staff, and a handful of conservatives and Republicans and independents. And it has been really great to, to build this cross-partisan team and, and fairly diverse team of folks who often disagree in pretty significant ways about some specific policy issues, but are all working together and committed to this idea that, that our democracy needs to be functioning for, for the American project to work. What are some of the most significant issues that you've gotten involved in? So we organize all of our work into six different categories, and these are categories that we came up with in those conversations with scholars, and everything we do is in one of these. So so I'll just tick through those categories and then can kind of talk about various projects that we're working on in any or all of them. So one is preventing the politicization of institutions that were once independent, like civil service and law enforcement. One is um, fighting back against power grabs by the executive branch at the expense of other branches of government. One is the government spread of disinformation. Another is preventing government from quashing dissent. A fifth is stopping the delegitimization of communities. And what we mean by that is the tendency of an authoritarian-minded leader to try to exclude some types of people and some types of communities from the polity and sort of say, no, this democracy isn't really about them. And then the final one is stopping the corrupting of elections. Obviously, free and fair elections are the essence of a democracy. So we've got different projects within each of those categories and some that overlap. So I'll mention just a couple. One is within the executive power grabs bucket. We have been concerned about abuse of the president's pardon power. It's a power that is fairly broad in the Constitution and that if left 
completely open-ended could allow the president to shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and get away with it or tell a friend to shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and get away with it. This is rhetoric that Trump had during the, the campaign. So we were kind of on the lookout for abuses of the pardon power. And then last summer, President Trump pardoned Sheriff Arpaio out in Arizona. So Arpaio had been convicted for violating orders of a federal court designed to protect the constitutional rights of people. And what Trump was doing through this pardon was saying, it's okay, you can go violate these constitutional rights and no court can stop you. And that felt to us like a situation where the pardon power was being used in a way that would undermine the rest of the Constitution. And so we started with some partner organizations a legal challenge to the validity of that pardon, saying that, sure, the pardon power is broad and you can use it for all kinds of ways to to provide mercy and justice, but you can't use it in a way that undermines the rest of the Constitution. So that is you know, a, a specific effort that's ongoing. It's in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to try to constrain a power that could otherwise be used to undermine everything else. Another project we have been working on, which is in the corrupting elections bucket, is a set of advocacy in different states focused on the machinery of elections. So there was a lot of attention in the 2016 campaign about collusion with Russia, about hacking into the campaigns and and emails and WikiLeaks. We've got a lawsuit about that. But this is a, a distinct concern, which is that a foreign or domestic actor might actually hack into voting machines in a way that changes the outcome of of cast votes or erases votes in ways that are completely democracy destructive. And so we have been working in a couple of different states to try and use different advocacy tools to get them to put in place better voting machines that have a paper trail and avoid the risk of this type of foreign or domestic Another project that we've been focused on, and this fits into the politicizing institutions bucket, has been protecting the integrity and the independence of the Justice Department against White House interference. So the, the, the very first thing we did as an organization was we, we sent a memo to reporters who cover the White House and to congressional staff about traditional limits on White House interference in Justice Department matters and Since Watergate, every administration of Democrats and Republicans has had a policy that says, as a general matter, people in the White House shouldn't talk to people in the Justice Department about law enforcement matters. And when they do, it should be very regulated so only a few people can talk to only a few other people in very limited situations. And the idea here is you don't want a president to corrupt law enforcement and use federal law enforcement as a way of going after his political enemies or letting his political allies off the hook. That has obviously been something that has been a consistent theme of President Trump has been trying to use the Justice Department in exactly this way. So in addition to that initial memo we did, we've since done a white paper that weighs out why these limits on interference in the Justice Department really come out of basic constitutional principles about how the law is supposed to be enforced in proper and and equal and fair ways. We filed a brief on behalf of a bipartisan group of former DOJ leaders in a particular antitrust case, arguing that President Trump's apparent interference in that was a departure from those constitutional principles. 
And we've also um, gotten a, a letter signed by a thousand bipartisan former DOJ officials, all kind of standing up for the integrity of DOJ and warning about the dangers of, of White House interference in DOJ. So you know, those are kind of a few of the different projects. We've probably got 20 or 30 different projects in, in various categories, but that gives you some sense of the, the types of issues and modes of advocacy that we're using. How do you think it's going in general? It's a really hard question and one that I torture myself about a little bit all the time. So on the one hand, I feel thrilled with where we are as an organization. So we've built this great team. We've got a really smart set of projects. We've got a really strong team culture in place and we work well together. We are thoughtful, we're focused, we're strategic. And so when I think about this organization that we're building, I feel really good. When I then think about, well, how is U.S. democracy doing and are we having success in protecting our democracy, it is, it's a little bit of a different story. And, uh, you know, nothing that's happened in the last year and a half suggests that we're on a, a strong path toward constraining a authoritarian minded leader and who has shown all kinds of impulses to do away with the checks and balances on him. So the hard part for me is kind of feeling like we've got this really good organization and yet it is a big challenge. Now I remind myself we are a 20 person organization and we're taking on a mission that is unbelievably ambitious and an entire federal government in some sense that has a lot of power and a lot of authority. And so I don't in any way underestimate the challenge that we've got. And um, obviously we're one of many different organizations that are doing a lot of creative and significant and useful things. Ultimately, I think this is a problem that gets solved at the ballot box and the best cure for halting democratic decline is for the public to decide to care about, about all these sets of issues and to uh, use their votes in a way that it puts us back on a, on the right path toward democracy. You mentioned there's a number of organizations doing like-minded work. Who, who are your best allies, would you say, in this fight? So we've worked with just a whole bunch of different organizations. One thing that I've loved is that we've done it with organizations across the political spectrum. So we've worked with some traditionally more left-leaning organizations on different projects like ACLU and CREW and American Oversight. Um, and we've also worked with a lot of organizations started by conservatives or that are more right-leaning, like Stand Up Republic and R Street and the Niskanen Center. And I think it's so important that these issues not become just a, a whole bunch of kind of liberal progressive groups teaming up together because... At its core, this is not really about one party or one political viewpoint versus another, but about kind of basic foundations for our democracy. So the more we can get groups and allies across the spectrum, the better. Um, we've also done a lot trying to kind of team up with specific individuals, whether it's law professors or former officials or commentators on, on various projects. We've recently heard that Justice Kennedy is stepping down. What bearing do you think that has on your work? I have been thinking a lot about that um, since that news came out. 
it's a really hard question. There are a lot of different ways to look at it. One way to look at it is just kind of very narrowly, much of our work involves litigation on kind of big creative constitutional challenges and questions. And so, you know, one question is sort of when you have a different Supreme Court, what does that mean for specific cases that we are bringing or may bring? One way to think about it is where is the Supreme Court going to go over the next generation and what will that mean for U.S. democracy in terms of its likely holdings in different types of cases? So, and we've seen this term, a lot of cases that affect democracy where the court has come out in ways that I think are, are not helpful to having a functioning democracy. So that includes cases that go to voter registration and the extent to which states can take people's names off of voter registration rolls, to gerrymandering, to the role of unions and their First Amendment rights and campaign finance issues. And so a Trump replacement for Justice Kennedy may take the court more and more in directions that make our democracy less strong and less inclusive. And then a final way to think about this is that the battles over judicial nominations and confirmations over the last um, decades have been just toxic for our political system. And this really came to an extreme with Senator McConnell's treatment of the Garland nomination and his sort of unprecedented decision to not allow any nominee to be considered or voted on, followed by the use of the nuclear option to allow Justice Gorsuch to be confirmed with 50 votes. But the, the process, you know, has not been um, corroded only by Republicans. Democrats in, in the Senate have also changed procedural rules at different times and ways to get judges on the court. And this process has just been so ugly and so toxic and so partisan that I think it in and of itself has has contributed to kind of the, the weakening of our political system and the lack of confidence that we've got a well-functioning democracy. So the, the question I'm struggling with is sort of how to fit together all of these three different things of what does it mean for some specific cases? What does it mean for broader doctrines about how our democracy is going to work? And then what does the confirmation process going forward mean for the function of our democracy? None of it, I think, points in a promising direction, but the question is sort of which ways are, are most dangerous and which ways can those harms best be ameliorated. Is it possible that we're overestimating the threat here? I mean, Trump may have some natural authoritarian tendencies, but even the Republican Party has believed in democracy for a long time. And the judges that they appoint, I assume, at the end of the day do. Could it be that we're not nearly in as bad a place as it feels like when we look directly at Trump himself? It could. We like to, in some ways, think of ourselves as a worst-case scenario-focused organization. And so we, you know, we hope it doesn't get as bad as, as it could. The hard part and the, the response to that is that we're not looking at and thinking about sort of 1930s-style authoritarianism where it's... Hitler and Stalin and SS brigades and the like, it is a more modern version of authoritarianism where something appears to be a democracy, there are elections, there are people in office, but yet in reality, there is one ruler 
whose power is fairly unchecked, who makes sure that he wins every election or that his allies win every election and who makes it so that people out of power really have a harder time raising their voice in dissent or organizing against. And that's kind of the, the path that I'm worried we are headed toward. So, you know, you can see this type of thing in like Trump's effort to use his bully pulpit to go after critics. So, you know, it was Harley Davidson the other day in the restaurant in Virginia before that, where he's, and, you know, before then Colin Kaepernick, where somebody wants to voice their own views and participate in the democracy and Trump uses his powers to, to make that type of democratic dissent or participation really kind of difficult and, and to quash it. And the concern I have is that if the institutions of the democracy aren't healthy enough to resist that, that you could kind of move more and more and fairly quickly to a place where, sure, it looks like a democracy. There is a Congress. It sits and does its thing. There is a court. It hears cases. There are newspapers. There are elections. And yet people are not truly free to organize and to voice opposition and to criticize and ultimately to participate in, in fully informed and free and fair elections that choose how they want to be governed. And we're, we're not there yet. I hope we don't get there, but I do think that is the path we have been moving toward over the last 18 months. And that it is certainly our mission, but I think everybody has a role to play in, in arresting that decline and keeping us from going to the truly dangerous place. Who is most in danger in your mind right now? I think it is the groups that have and communities that have never fully been equal participants in our democracy. And so I think that's, you know, largely communities of racial, ethnic, and religious minorities. So when we look at what's going on with immigration enforcement at the border, it's hard to see anybody within our country who is in more immediate and acute danger than kids and families being ripped apart and held in horrendous ways and subjected to a really cruel and unfair system at the border. That is a place where this plays out in sort of really immediate and acute human ways. I think another place this can play out is some of the stories we've seen about the application of the 100-mile border policy. So the U.S. has some kind of additional powers to set up checkpoints, check people's ID and do searches within 100 miles of the border. And then you realize that something like two-thirds of the country, including New York and Boston and Washington and L.A. and Chicago and all these major cities, are within 100 miles of the border. And so you've seen reports of Greyhound buses stopped, checkpoints set up in northern New York or Maine or New Hampshire or Florida. And people who are white and upper class and professional and have all kinds of papers, that's a minor inconvenience, show your ID. But for others in minority communities, those types of things can be, I think, very invasive and cruel and harmful interventions in daily life. Um, and obviously the Muslim ban is, is another example of a kind of religious community being targeted and harmed in really concrete ways. And so I think these democratic decline concepts 
can be a bit intellectual or abstract or policy oriented for many and for many in the majority, but where they really harm people is, um, is minority communities. I got on a bus in white river junction, uh, Vermont a couple weeks ago, a greyhound. And we, there were four border agents there and they came on the bus and this is down in the middle of Vermont. So we're well South of Canada and they came on the bus and just asked people where they were from. And if the people said, oh, we're coming from somewhere else, they asked for their papers. And they asked me, and what, what should I have done in that circumstance? So I'm a lawyer and I start from a strong bias that you follow the law and do what law enforcement asks. I think they do have legal authority to do those types of searches. And so I think complying is the right move. I think there are other things that one could do in that situation, like trying to offer assistance to people who maybe don't speak as good English or are confused or feel threatened, observing and witnessing and if appropriate recording and monitoring what's happening to make sure that there is no kind of abusive tactics can be helpful. And then I think it is telling that story and trying to raise awareness about how our government has some fairly extreme authorities that if if used properly and used narrowly and for their intended purposes, make all kinds of sense in terms of protecting our country and making sure that things aren't smuggled and, and all these things. But that can be used in ways that make this feel more like a police state than we could ever imagine. And this is an area that I think is ripe for a Congress to do some really rigorous oversight on how these laws and authorities are being used and, and misused and in an ideal world that would really significantly refine the policies to make sure that they're only being used where there's a real kind of critical law enforcement purpose and done in such a way that they're not racially profiling and, and singling people out. What do you worry about in terms of next moves by Trump? If he's following the authoritarian playbook, what is in the future and what are you doing to try to get ahead of it? So the things that fundamentally most worry me are, are elections. A lot can go wrong and he can accumulate a lot of power and misuse it in all kinds of ways between now and November 2018 or now in November 2020. But ultimately, if we have free and fair elections, then the people can weigh in and first in 2018, vote for a Congress that provides a check or in 2020, vote him out. And I approach this from a from a really nonpartisan perspective. I would think it would be great for our democracy if uh, that's a Republican or an independent or a Democrat who, who replaces him. So the, the concern I have is what ways can those elections be corrupted, whether it's through attacks on voting machines or through some sort of law enforcement intervention that all of a sudden in the weeks before an election, there's some new FBI thing that comes out that casts some rumors on a particular candidate or announces some law enforcement investigation, or obviously all of the kind of hacking of email accounts and dumping of information, or ultimately a really scary scenario, I think, is the potential for elections to be delayed. This seems like 
you know, the type of thing that would be unimaginable, but in the Alabama Senate special election, when Roy Moore was having all of these um, challenges in his campaign, there was some like, serious discussion, including you know, memos going back and forth between the Senate and the White House about the possibility of trying to delay that special election in a way that would allow them to kind of get a new candidate in. I've seen polling that if President Trump came out and said, well, we can't be certain about whether there's voter fraud going on or improper people voting in elections, so we need to delay our elections for a while till we get our systems better, that a massive percentage of Republican voters in polls would, would support and embrace that. So I would say it's sort of the suite of, of potential harms that could happen to an election that most worries me. Um, and we've talked a little bit about some of the things we're doing in different states focused on election machinery. We have a, another case um, that is backward looking, but really could help clarify and strengthen the legal protections against hacking in coordination with foreign governments uh, against political campaigns. We've done some work on this election delay concept and what the legal and constitutional principles are. So those are the types of things. This may ultimately have to be fought in the hearts and minds of the populace. Is there anything that your group does in order to try to influence public opinion, or are you only working in the courts? We do a lot outside the courts. I'd say right now we are focused more on engaging with journalists, engaging with DC think tank experts and grass tops groups and members of Congress than doing kind of direct to public communications and advocacy. That in part is just sort of we're a startup. We're about a year and a half old and we felt like as we built an organization, we can add the most value and accomplish the most by sort of focusing on those relatively inside the beltway type approaches. But I, very much agree that ultimately the solution to our democracy's ills is with the broader public and our, our plan. I don't think we've talked about this, but we sort of thought about our mission in three stages. Stage one is we have an authoritarian minded figure in the white house who's chipping away at our institutions and tearing down the roof of a metaphorical house. And we got to just sort of prop up those institutions, prop up the roof Stage two, we've thought of as there will come a day when he leaves office and when we have an opportunity to strengthen our laws and our checks and balances to prevent against a Trump 2.0, a kind of more dangerous and more strategic authoritarian figure. And so there is a set of things that Congress could could enact that we're going to soon release a, a set of proposals on this for ways that Congress could with fairly technocratic solutions, kind of harden our system, harden our norms into laws, codify practices, close loopholes in ways that protect against the, the biggest authoritarian dangers. And that's something where it will ultimately be upon members of Congress to do it. But our hope is to have a kind of broader public communications and engagement to put pressure on Congress to do that. And then ultimately, stage three is we've never had a perfect democracy in the US. Um, there have always been groups and communities that are excluded and weird rules like the electoral college or the makeup of the Senate that allow a minority to maintain control and prevent a majority from choosing how it wants to be governed. Now, a lot of those make 
rules make sense and are based on the constitution and you know, sh- should stay in place. But at the same time that there's that kind of history of some exclusion and non-inclusion, there's also these kind of big global trends that are happening, not just here in the U.S., but around the world that are happening in Europe. Things like globalization and changing demographics, economic shifts and rise of inequality, media landscape shifts, heightened tribalism, sorting out of populations, and all of these kind of big, big picture structural issues to fundamentally feel really good about the state of democracy, we'd have to take them on. And those are the types of things where it's ultimately the public and the people themselves that will have to create the motivation for those changes. So our operating theory as an organization is we started as a group of lawyers, start with focusing on the kind of more legal, technical policy work. Um, But as we grow and as we build additional capacities, more and more have our work focused on trying to convince the public that that our democracy is is worth fighting for and worth protecting and that there are ways to do it. Such important stuff. What lessons have you learned about starting and operating a group like this, the sort of political entrepreneurship that's involved? It's been the area where I've learned the most, the substance of what we do. It's slightly different challenges than I've worked on before, but having worked you know, at law firms and in the Senate and in the White House, I felt fairly familiar with the set of laws and policies and, and tools available. The building a organization, building a startup piece is completely new to me. I've worked in institutions that, well, phenomenal institutions, I think are not thought of as um, particularly sophisticated in terms of management and leadership training. And so it's all been a big learning curve. So one clear lesson for me has been the importance of building a really strong team culture. One of the very first things we did before we even started the organization, when we were coming up with a strategy, starting to raise money, starting to think about hiring, was to come up with a set of culture principles that would govern how we operate and how we make decisions and work together. And that has been an incredible success for us. So so these include things like when we make a decision, mission is the metric. So we always try to make decisions based on what will best accomplish our mission and not what will make somebody feel good or what will a donor want or what will help somebody get more prestige so that they can get some job in the future. Another one is cherishing feedback and giving it freely but also responsibly and more than any other organization I've been a part of, we are really focused on on pretty open and candid feedback with everybody on the team up, down and sideways in ways that is really focused on making us as effective as we can be. Another principle we added is panic is the enemy in the world we're operating in where every time you're on Twitter, there are 15 things that you see that are, make you feel like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. We got to do something about this. And that type of panic is ultimately destructive of strategic thinking and having kind of some clarity of what what we really want to be focused on and, and staying focused on those big things. There are 10 of these principles and we train everybody in the organization very intensively in them. We share them with our partners on different projects, with co-counsel on a case or with partners on an advocacy project. We share them with our our donors and they have been kind of a glue that has allowed us to operate really well. And it's certainly something that I 
wouldn't have anticipated how important they've been and have really taken to heart how key that is. I'd say another lesson has been the importance of, of clarity of mission. We, I think, are able to operate fairly well and make good decisions because we have a, a very simple and explicit mission. And so everything, when we're deciding what to do, it's a pretty, it's not always easy questions, but we always know what the framework is for making those. Is, is this going to help us and how much is this going to help us accomplish our mission? And I think as I've looked around and seen other organizations that don't necessarily have this clear sense of mission, I think that can be a challenge. Justin, it's been a real privilege to talk to you today. What else should I have asked you or what else do you want to say? So, you know, I think we've covered things well. I guess I would just leave with the thought that our democracy has been a incredible force of good in, in the country and the world. And the U.S. has been a leader around the globe, um, a city on the hill in spreading democracy around the world. And as democracy is under threat and in some retreat all around the world these days, we have a real opportunity and I think obligation to show that democracy can work. And I think our democracy is, is in trouble right now, but ultimately all of the foundations for it to become strong again are there. We are working on um, using our tools to try and strengthen and protect the democracy. Um, it would, would certainly invite folks to, to join with us in our mission at Protect Democracy. would love folks to visit our, our website as protectdemocracy.org. But beyond that, I think everybody has sets of skills and experiences that they can use to help protect what's good about our country, whether somebody's a teacher or a scientist or a daycare worker or works in a community. There are all kinds of conversations that we can have and ways that we can relate to people and, and treat different people that can help shore up our democracy. So this is a project that really everybody can can engage in and um, would just urge everybody to, to sort of stay cognizant that as much as specific policy issues may come and go or specific partisan tribal feelings may come and go that fighting for a, a kind of well-functioning democracy that abides by the rule of law is, is ultimately essential to prevailing as a, as a free and prosperous society. Well said. Thank you so much for your time. That was Justin Florence at Protect Democracy. Justin is at protectdemocracy.org. Justin and the team at Protect Democracy are working on matters of central concern to our republic in this challenging time. I'm glad they are on the job. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.